this different aspect of um, the gospel message. In, in kids' work, we've actually started sort of helping the children uh, to look at apologetics. Very big word. I didn't even know what it meant. Um, but basically, that's kind of knowing what we believe, why we believe it. Um, and the first principle that um, we examined was actually that the truth is real and that the truth is important. Um, and I believe this also sort of extends to our understanding of the gospel as well. Um, so I didn't get the opportunity to go to Commission Festival this year, but I managed to kind of catch the, the Sunday live stream. And it was in it that the preacher, whose name I have completely forgotten, uh, shared that there was one word that puts fear equally into Christians and non-Christians when uttered. Does anybody want to guess what that word is? Hmm? No. <laughs> no. Uh, okay, so loads of people didn't watch that one. Watch the live stream. It's lovely. It was the word evangelism. <laughs> So, <laughs> what is evangelism? And in essence, it's actually just sort of witnessing or, or sharing the gospel. And why does it put fear into Christians? You might be asking yourself, right? Well, I don't want to do any kind of injustice to the preach that was done because it was really good. So, if you do get a chance, watch it because it's really good. But I do want to um, encourage us. And for, for me, kind of what it boiled down to is that there's two possible responses to, to witnessing, right? So you can either have fear or you can have faith. Um, and so I want to encourage all of us today to witness. And the main reason for this is that I wholeheartedly believe that the truth is that the gospel is attractive. And so today I want to convince you that the gospel is attractive. And I guess the question is, if the gospel is attractive, why would there be any kind of fear of sharing it, right? Why would there be sheer fear of sharing the gospel if it's attractive? So I want to kind of explore that a bit. So I've heard the word fear defined as false evidence appearing real. Right? So fear is false evidence appearing real. And the truth of the matter is that we are heavily influenced by what we hear. So much so that what we hear influences what we believe. Which is why if we keep hearing that the gospel is offensive or that the gospel is unacceptable to the current world that we're living, after some time, we start to believe that evidence, right? What you hear actually affects what you believe. Now, the Word of God also speaks, and it speaks about evidence, but it speaks about faith being the source of our evidence. So the Word of God says in Hebrews 11 and verse 1 that faith is actually the evidence of what is not seen. 
right? So now faith is the substance of things that are hoped for. It's the evidence of things that are not seen. And it goes on to say that faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God. So in Romans 10, 17, Paul says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. So faith comes from hearing hearing the word of God. So in reality, those two um, elements are there, right? So we are hearing things all the time, right? But not everything that we hear is going to build our faith. A lot of the things that we hear will be those false evidences that are building fear within us. But then the things that we hear from God's word is what will build faith within us. So the challenge really is to examine what we're hearing and challenge how often we're hearing it. So are we hearing God's word and how often are we hearing God's word? So before we continue speaking about the gospel and how attractive the gospel is, I think it would be good to kind of define what the gospel message is. What is the gospel? So what is the gospel? And I think it's easy to comprehend when we look at a specific scripture passage. But I'm pretty sure it's not going to be the one that most of you are thinking of right now. So let's go to Luke chapter 4. And verse 18. There are some Bibles at the back if anyone needs one. So Luke chapter 4 and verse 18 reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. As I said, I'm sure that this is not the particular passage that we would associate with the gospel, right? So allow me to bring to light the attractiveness of the gospel by looking at some stories from the Bible about lives that were affected by the gospel. So the first person that we're going to look at is a man by the name of Saul. And we all kind of know the story, right, in Acts chapter 9, where it kind of details a very familiar story and there's a story of how Saul encountered Jesus on his way to Damascus um, and it goes on from sort of most of the Acts 9 but I think I'll just read a couple of the verses here um, so if we look at verse 9 it says and he was three days without sight and neither nor drank and so what basically what happens is Saul is persecuting the Christians of the day Saul has got a charge from the, the, the 
high priest to arrest Christians. And he's making his way to Damascus because he, you know, the Christians are fleeing from Jerusalem at this time. And basically on his way, he then has, you know, a very interesting encounter, right? He, he encounters Jesus, right? And in the, in the midst of encountering Jesus, he says, you know, who are you, <laughs> Lord, right? So obviously he's encountering Jesus that he does not know. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a bright shining light. He gets blind, which is what this part of the, the message is talking about. And then he, he ends up going to Damascus. But, in, you know, instead of going to Damascus as he had planned to go, to look and to find and to persecute the Christians, he was blind. So I'm helpless and stuck in, in a house on a road called Straight. And I, I still remember... Um, on here where it talks about Ananias, right? Very, uh, what's the word? Normal, I guess, Christian of the time. So he was just, you know, it doesn't say here Ananias was a uh, a deacon or Ananias was a, a man of great, uh, a prophet or anything like that. He was just one of the Christians in the church. And God appeared to him to, and said, oh, I need you to go and, meet this man Paul. Now I don't know about you, but when we're talking about fear and we're talking about faith, this time around there was actually, you know, maybe a reasonable reason to be afraid, right? Literally, Saul came to look for Christians to arrest them. And then God's saying to Ananias, Oh, you go and find Saul. I don't know about you, but I would have had a bit of a conversation, right? I would have been like, hang on a second, did you say Saul or did you say, you know, Maybe I got you wrong here somehow, right? But he did it. He went over and he spoke to Saul. And, you know, in verse 17, it talks about um, how Ananias went and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 18, it says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So Saul had a, a physical blindness for three days, but actually he also had a, a spiritual blindness, right? Saul was so convinced of his beliefs and values that he was willing to kill for them. And so if, if we think about what Ananias did, he was quite brave, right? And we're being called to be brave as well. But I just wondered, are there people today that we know who might also be just as convinced on this particular matter as Saul was? What happens if God asked you who he wanted to save? And he asked you to put a list together of who you were looking for him to get saved. Who you were looking to witness to. I wonder who would be on that list. I also wonder if Saul would make it on that list. Surely you will be convinced 
this guy will not find the gospel attractive, right? I beg to differ. So I was going to have a board, but I didn't get the props. It's painted out. There's some white nails and everything. But we'll just imagine that there's a board over here <laughs> and a white thing over here on that board now. So that's Saul who became Paul's story. But there are other stories, right? So I'm going to take us to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to meet another person. And we're going to read from Luke chapter 5. I'm going to start from verse 1 to 11. And it says, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of, oh my, Gennesaret, <laughs> the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of them, the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, you've, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. When I read this, what I was sort of drawn to was verse 8 when it says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knee and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. So I was wondering, what exactly was Peter referring to when he said, I'm a sinful man? Right? So what we know is that he was a fisherman, right? And in, in that time, or in that period, fishermen were what we would call the sort of real salt of the earth types, right? So usually, they would have had some maybe very colorful language, right? They were also prone to things like drinking, gambling, fighting, 
So I think I want I would love to say that Peter was an exceptional fisherman and so he had none of these types of characteristics. And that's the reason why Jesus chose to go on his boat. But if I did that I'll be I'll be lying. Right? This must have been what was going on through Peter's mind when he said, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I'm just wondering if we can think of anybody that fits that kind of profile today. Maybe they're very loud, very opinionated, have some colorful language right but usually there are also people who are honest workers that end up maybe with you know just the hardship of life and now I'm wondering where we would put this person on our list of people that were trying to get saved I wonder if he would fit the bill and where he would fit within the bill I'm wondering where Peter is going on our list is he higher than Paul is he lower than Paul on that list I don't know your list so let's look at someone else let's look at Matthew alright so Matthew's story was actually found in Matthew chapter 9. And we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read um, verse 9 for you. And so Matthew chapter 9 verse 9 says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. So maybe this is one of the most uneventful members of the team of disciples right doesn't seem like it's not as uh, what's the word it's not as dramatic as Paul right it's no shining light it's no kind of voice that no one can hear coming from heaven none of that kind of stuff he's just sitting there doing his job Jesus passes by and says come and just left right Nothing so dramatic about that. But Matthew at the time had a standing in society as a tax collector. And he definitely had the trappings of wealth. Not someone that the world would have categorized as poor. But the thing is, I can in some way identify Matthew there. Because a lot of times growing up with wealth also brings about an expectation to be happy, right? You have all that this world can offer. And so the expectation is that he should be happy. But interestingly, somehow, you might find yourself in a situation where you're not happy. And the reason why you're not happy is because somehow, all that you have does not minister to what your soul actually needs. And I've found myself in that position before. Before I came to know the Lord, the material things just didn't bring any kind of 
satisfaction. They brought pleasure sometimes, just fleeting, but they did not bring purpose and they did not bring meaning and they did not bring anything that was lasting. And so, in a sense, he was in that booth as a, a prisoner of his circumstances as he was longing for something that truly satisfied. So when we talk about the gospel being attractive, I wonder where would Matthew fit on our list, right? Would he be one of those that we really saw was in need? I wonder. The next person I've got on my list is someone who's definitely not going to be common. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because there's quite a lot to read here, but um, there's the story, it's the story of Hannah. And so the story is in First Samuel verse 1, and it's talking really about you know, ha- Hannah's prayer and Hannah's appeal to God. And in, in verse 10 of First Samuel 1, it says, In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of my life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. In verse 16, this was after um, the high priest Eli was sitting there and watching her. You know, he started getting some ideas in his head, and, you know, he thought, this lady is praying, but her lips are moving, but no words are coming out of her mouth. Maybe she's, you know, drunk, or maybe, you know, she's you know, doing something wrong. And in verse 16, Hannah says, Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked him. The story of Hannah is that Hannah was actually being bullied by her mates. Right? She was remi- reminded almost daily that she was unable to do what should have been natural for a woman to do. She was unable to be a mother. She was unable to give birth. And she was broken because she was trying also to give to her husband what he needed. And her family suffered. But there was nothing that she could do to stop it. Right? I wonder, in our society today, are there maybe people who are also disillusioned by hopes and dreams that are not being realized? I wonder if there are families that might be suffering today through no fault of their own. If we were to put Hannah on that list, I wonder where she would go.
And now for the last, but definitely not the least, <laughs> um, in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 14, we read about Naaman. And verse 1 says, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Right. So the story of Naaman, as most would know, is you know he was as the leader, commander of the the army. Um, you know, and you know, being a commander of an army is you know something that requires physical strength. Right. It also requires you to be you know in a position of leadership and authority over, over people. And Naaman had this disease which was basically eating off <laughs> parts of his body. And so in desperation, he was looking for a way to, to be free of this disease. And his servant said, oh, you know, there's a prophet in Israel. Maybe you should go to him. So he goes and takes permission to leave um, from the king and in verse 9 it says Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house Elisha sent a messenger to him to say to him go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed but Naaman went away angry and said I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hands over the spots and cure me of my leprosy. And later on it says, Naaman's servant went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something, some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? You see, Naaman was, as a man of authority, he was coming through with his men, right? So there was, you know, pride in, in Naaman when he went to Elisha. He wanted something. He wanted to be healed. But he wanted to be healed on his own terms, right? And Elisha gave him what were simple instructions, but he was angry. And he took his servant to say, hang on a second. It could have been worse. He could have asked you to do something else. All he's asked you to do is wash. Why can't we obey that? You know, in, in, in that time, leprosy was a horrible disease that had no cure. Right? And it separates you from your family. It separates you from those around you because, you know, you get ostracized. And so it almost felt to him like the writing was on the wall. He had a death sentence coming and there was literally nothing that Naaman could do about it. So where would Naaman fit on our list? Would he be at the top? Maybe in the middle somewhere. Or maybe he'll be at the bottom. 
The reality of the matter is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is attractive to all of these people. Although they have different needs and very different circumstances. So if the gospel is so attractive, why do we fear to witness? Why do we fear to share it? The truth is, there is a final element of the gospel that we also need to consider. So, as I read earlier, Jesus stood up in the synagogue and he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. So when Jesus read that message at his hometown, I wonder what the reaction was. Right? Did everyone go, yes! Did everyone go, finally! Did everyone jump up out of their seats? Well, they probably did, but for the wrong reason. The reaction to this message was not what we would have expected, right? It says it in Luke 4, 28 and 29, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They were filled with anger. And they did rise up. They rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him onto the brow of the hill where their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. Head first. So the intention was very clear, right? Their reaction to the message was to kill him. Throw him off the hill. That was their reaction to those same words. You see, the reality is that there is a condition to the gospel being effective. There is a condition to the gospel being attractive. And we find that in Jeremiah 29. Um, and I'm going to read from verse 11 where it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me, come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You know, the thing about it is, we, when we look at um, an example of this in uh, Samuel's, um, the coronation of, um, of David, right? Samuel goes up to this house and God's directed him to this house. And we have to remember that Samuel's a prophet of God and he's been hearing God since he was 12 years old. And at this time, this was 30 odd years later, um, and he's going to crown the next king of Israel, right? And he goes to Jesse's house because that's where God sent him to. And then they start, you know, parading all the boys in front of him. 
you know? And he's like, oh, is it this one? No, it's not that one. Is it this one? No, it's not that one. Um, and then in the end, you know, the the Bible says that God says to him, man looks on the outside, but I see the heart. And so that's the key to all of this, is the reality is that God sees the heart, but we don't. So I'm just wondering how many are blind among us in society today? How many are those who are convinced that they know the truth? Those who are convinced that they're serving the one true God so much so that they're willing to kill others to protect that truth? Or could it be that there are others who've discounted themselves from being followers of Christ? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinner, they said. We won't find these ones at church. But we will find them at our workplaces, in the marketplace, or in their homes, holding on to their dreams of a harmonious family, maybe in the hospitals, searching for the real God who can release them from their prison inside their own bodies. To all of these people, there is a truth that we now all know. The truth is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is attractive and is just as effective today as it was 2,000 years ago. Paul put it the best way in Romans 10, 14, when he says, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And now how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach to them unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. When I was preparing for this, the, the, the Lord kind of showed me or reminded me of the parable that Jesus told of the, the sower. Right? So if you remember the parable, sower's got seeds and he's going to plant those seeds. And the Bible talks about as he was going to plant those seeds, some of the seeds fell on the roadside. Some of it fell on shallow ground. And then some of it fell on good ground. And what the Lord was saying to me was, I found it a little bit weird. If I was going to plant seeds, I definitely want to plant it on good ground. So my question was, why was the seed falling? on the earth and why is Jesus telling that parable and not telling us this guy for trying <laughs> for not keeping his seed properly and allowing it to just fall on the way and that was a picture that God was giving me to basically say that we need to be encouraged right because God sees the heart we don't our job is to allow the seed to fall as we go we have to allow the seed to fall right because our preconceived idea would be that's where the seed should be. This is where the good ground is. 
But in reality, he's just saying, Allah will see to it all. And so I just want to leave us all with that encouragement to choose faith, to choose to believe what God's word says about itself, to remind yourself often that the gospel is attractive and the gospel is effective. And in the words of a very old song, which I wasn't going to cover currently, it says, Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Everybody ought to tell. Yes, everybody ought to tell. Everybody ought to tell who Jesus is. Now, I don't know about you, but I know he is the lily of the valley. He is the bright and morning star. He is the fairest of ten thousand and everybody ought to know. So I just want to encourage you all to say everybody ought to know. And <laughs> thank you.